I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Well, it's a pleasure to be here to talk to uh, Michael, who is a writer of, of prodigious energy. I read that he is the author of over 140 books. How is that even possible? Some of them are very small. <laughs> it makes my own little, no, no, no. little tally of four seem very paltry indeed. And the range is astonishing. It's from poetry, fiction, politics, biography. We've just heard about the Zola book. Um, he's also professor of children's literature at Goldsmiths College, part of London University, and teaches on an MA in children's literature, which he helped devise. He presents Radio 4's Word of Mouth program on language, and he writes a, a, a beautifully provocative open letter to the Secretary of State for Education each month in The Guardian. His book, We're Going on a Bear Hunt, has sold over 8 million copies and been translated into 18 languages. And when I told my 21-year-old daughter that I was going to be interviewing Michael, and I said, there can't be many uh, children's authors who've written a book that perfectly encapsulates Freud's idea of working through. You know, we can't go over it, we can't go under it, oh no, we've got to go through it. And she stared at me and she said, he didn't write that, did he? And I said, yes, you remember, we've read it so many times. And she went, oh my God, I'd forgotten it was him. She said, that's my mantra. She said, any time one of my friends is depressed, I tell them, tells you how annoying she can be. <laughs> we can't go over it. We can't go under it. We've got to go through it. So you've obviously just entered the culture. Yes, I that. won't claim full credit for that, as it, it was a traditional song that was sung in the Brownies and on American summer camp songs, uh, summer camps, which I adapted, uh, performed, and then I was caught performing it by the general uh, Macher who, uh, who uh, runs Walker Books. And he said, that would make a great book. And I said, yes. <laughs> and he said, well, it's yours, isn't it? I said, well, not really. I said, it's just traditional. It's, 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 part, of it's, the oral tradition. it's part of the oral tradition. Mm. I said, you write it down. He said, you write it down. You write it down. I said, you write it down. So we stood there and they said, look, I want you to write it down. <laughs> so when I went away and wrote it, you may not know, but all picture books are a sort of exactly the same format. There wasn't enough. So I had to make up some other things like forests and snowstorms. And then I discovered that if you go, psh, psh, 
it doesn't write down very well, so that turned into swishy-swashy. So with this incredible amount of invention, um, and then it was handed over to Helen Oxenbury, who, did who a then wonderful job. created a book. I didn't create the book, yeah. Helen did. Um, and those of us who are interested in the theory of picture books, you'll notice it says we're going on a bear hunt, but it's Helen who says who the we are. So when you, if you imagine you're a child sitting on somebody's lap, and into your ears comes we're going on a bear hunt, as a child you then interpret that, a word not, that never comes up in the national curriculum, interpret, we're only interested in retrieval, <laughs> um, and the child, aged one or two, interprets the word we that the child hears by looking at the we in the picture, who are a group of people and a dog and a teddy bear, a baby, and so the child tells the story. That's the genius of Helen Oxenbury, not me. Hmm. Lovely. Very, very nice. Well, the, the, the main danger you're facing, I think, Michael, is that you're at risk of being turned into a national treasure, which would be the kiss of death. Yeah. Um, but we're we'll here, avoid that. Too. We're, we're here yeah. to discuss um, uh, Michael's memoir, So They Call You Pisher, which is um, a delightful uh, account, a very fond, but also obviously very funny, of um, his parents' um, lives uh, growing up in the East End, um, a wonderfully evocative portrait of Harold and Connie, who met at the Young Communist League, and growing up in a communist household. And I was very, uh, I was lucky enough to meet Harold when I did an event on this book of his, a great book called Are You Still Circumcised? A lovely collection of, of, of memories of his very, life very um, in, in, in the East End. And I can tell you that storytelling can be inherited. Anyway, enough of all of that. So I want to start by asking you uh, to explain, for those of us who aren't uh, fluent in Yiddish, uh, what the title means. Yes, Where so is the original? title is So They Call You Pisha. The intonation is So They Call You Pisha. Yes, the intonation is crucial. Um, what it means is really quite equivalent to sticks and stones will break, um, break your bones, but um, names will never harm you. So if there was something that maybe you didn't dare do, you might say, oh, I can't face that. My father would say, so they call you Pisha. In other words, what's the worst thing that could happen to you? They would call you Pisha. What is a Pisha? A Pisha literally is a pisser. Metaphorically, it is a nobody. It's a nothing, a nisht. So somebody who is nothing is a pisher. So what is the worst that they could do to you? They could call you a pisher. So it was a very defensive, very helpful phrase for my father to use. Um, and it's, it's quite funny in its own way, sort of. So he would say it. My mother's attitude to my father using Yiddish was uh, at best ambivalent. Um, I think my mother, my father loved the sound of Yiddish. He couldn't speak it, and we only discovered that mother actually knew more Yiddish than he did um, when we went to Germany, but that's leaping ahead a bit. But my dad would fill his speech with little bits of Yiddish. When he swore in Yiddish, which he did quite often, um, my mother would tell him not to. So he'd say something like, under his breath, you see, and mum would say, don't say that. And we'd say, what did he say? And mum would say, don't tell him. And so, of course, there was this, so I had to wait for my mother to die before I found out these disgusting and filthy phrases that my father knew. And he would say, well, that one means I've got you in my hole. And you'd go, well, what does that mean? He said, I don't know. It's just what people said. 
so anyway, um, so they're very ambivalent, my, my mother, about all that. But um, even so, I was just remembering yesterday, she actually, one of her phrases, which have to be in volume two, is, you know, even the best things can be turned to dreck. And she would, dreadly shit. And uh, she would say this, sort of like leaning out the window, philosophical. Even the best things can be turned. So, you know, she might turn here and see this lovely London Review book and say, do you know, even the best things can be turned to dreck. So I suddenly remembered occasionally my mum did resort to Yiddish as well. Little bit. I mean, their lives were completely shaped by growing up in the East End. Yes. Um, they talked about the East End a lot. Hmm. You remark in the book that they never took you there. <laughs> yeah. Why? Why was right. that? Right. So there's two things about this thing we call the East End, the East End of London, uh, as far as my parents' uh, attitude and their approach to it. One is to do with time and the other is to do with place. So as a time, it was before, I was born 1946, so the East End, as they talked about it, was this entity that existed between about 1890 and 1939. And it presumably never didn't go on existing, as far as I knew, because we were living in, don't laugh, Pinna. Uh, we can explain this later. In, in Pinna, in Middlesex, in the middle of Harrow. And then, as far as place is concerned, no, my parents never took us. I think first time, there's a picture of, I think, that my brother took of my dad um, in his street, but I mean, that's, that's somewhere around about 1970. I don't think I ever saw my dad's street until about five years ago. Um, so both time and, and place, uh, the East End sort of was just purely myth. It was just this thing that my parents talked about. So it was as mythic as these other Jewish places, namely Poland or indeed America, because my father in actual fact was born in America that part of the sort of di diaspora movements of my parents' families uh, was that my, father, my father's parents met in London, went to America, taking two children with them, had three more children, then split, and the mum came back with those three children, leaving the other two in America um, in about 1921-22. There's a photograph in the book of, of her with her three children who were born in America, including my dad, on the boat, SS President Harding. Um, and so there was, that's another mythic place where my father's father lived. He never went and found him. He went, my dad went to America, never went to go and find his family. Um, he went to France never in before the war, never found his French side of his family. So they're these sort of mythic hinterland, which maybe some of you will find familiar in your family, that these places and mythic pasts and places. And yet, when my father talked about it, he talked about the East End as if it was sort of this wonderful, glorious place where the, the chicken soup sort of smelt glorious and the, the bygles were fresh and, you know, and that people argued, whereas my mother tended to talk about uh, the Michelson's bed bugs. The Michelson's. You don't want to end up like the Michelson's. <laughs> who were the Michelson's? I never saw them. I never, no, didn't, well, who were they? And it was like this idea, you know, that people who came from a very poor background, there's this abyss that exists to one side of you, and down in the abyss were the Michelsons. <laughs> the Michelsons, or uh, David, and I'm going to forget his name, he's in the book, who, you know what he had to do? He had to schlep for his father, uh, which meant he had to carry a wheel, a wheelbarrow to Petticoat Lane. Now, you don't want to end up like him. He was, I never saw him. I had no idea who these people were. <laughs> 
So you didn't want to schlep like David Rosenberg or whatever his name was, and uh, you didn't want to be like the Michelsons, bed bugs. <laughs> What's a bed bug? You don't want to know. <laughs> Michael, you talk uh, extremely fondly uh, about Brian, your brother, in the book, and you say he was like a third parent. In, mm. in, in what way? Right, so my brother is uh, four years older than me. In fact, I always explain to children he was then as well. Um, it's one of my feeble jokes with children, but anyway, never mind. Um, so, yes, um, my parents, they were... Um, my mother described herself one, on one occasion as an anarcho-Stalinist. And what she meant by that was that one set of her beliefs were very libertarian. And the other was, I think she did think that maybe Britain could be sorted out if Stalin took over. But these two aspects, there's some contradiction between them. You may have noticed, those of you of a political bent. Um, and mum laughingly would concede that. But um, the thing about them was that they left me and my brother alone a good deal of the time. That was one aspect to it. But the other thing was that my brother take, takes his life and he took his job as he imagined it being given to him by my parents very, very seriously. So he believed that everything he was taught at school, he had to teach me. So that in principle, that doesn't sound too bad. But remember, he's four years older than me. So when he was six and I was two, he was teaching me to read. So the way they, one of the ways they taught us to read when I was a kid was to have Fred Chanel's word lists. So he used to sit up in bed on the other side of the room, making me, well, barking at me to sound out these words. It was like early phonics. I mean, maybe he was Michael Gove and I just didn't realise. <laughs> And so, you know, I have a memory of that. I have a memory of the fact that when, uh, when he was... Right, he was so clever, my brother, that they decided at the end of his first year at secondary school, they would bung him up a year. He missed the second year. So he missed what's now called year eight. So he went straight into year nine, which meant that by the time he was about 14, he was doing calculus. So he thought, obviously, Michael, teach him calculus. I am absolutely crap at maths. And the idea of, like, my brother sitting there going... It's D2Y by D2X. You've got to think of two cars accelerating, but one of them's accelerating faster than the other one's accelerating, and you're 10. Okay? So that would be another example of my brother uh, teaching me. And uh, he also felt that he had to direct my behavior, that it wasn't sufficient to have two parents telling you to clear up your bedroom. So it would go, my father would say, you should clear out the muck underneath your bed. My brother goes, it's time to clear out the muck underneath your bed. And I'd say, well, there's muck under your bed too. You see? And then my dad said, but we're talking about the muck under your bed. <laughs> and then my mother would say, leave him alone, he's tired. <laughs> and then that became like a family slogan that my mother would just... So then it moved on that my dad or my brother would start to tell me off and go, oh, right, so you haven't cleaned, you haven't cleaned up, have you? Leave him alone, he's tired. It would all become part of the same monologue. You see, they'd just tag on, leave him alone, he's tired. So my mother would just be left speechless, you see? So, uh, yeah. Uh, my brother did. He, he still does, by the way. My brother still does bring me up. If I, I did a book uh, on humanism for kids, and I, I made the, I won't say fatal mistake, but I rang him up. My brother wrote a book for the Natural History Museum about the origin of life, and I'd written a little draft, and that was a fatal mistake, because my brother is sort of world expert on the origin of life, so he had to then tell me about the origin of life. So, um, yeah, he's, he's still at it. Yes, yes. Is he here? Brian, are you here? No, Thursday night. Anyway, yes, good. Michael, um, your powers of recall 
seem to be absolutely astonishing. Mm. I mean, tell me that you haven't been Googling a lot of these things to remember them. How can you remember so much? Right. The trivial answer to that is, is really, it's a bit of a solipsism. I just do, right? I just remember them. In writing the book, I figured something that I haven't actually said in the book, which is that in my life, there have been three kind of disappearances. There's a disappearance of a son of my parents between me and my brother which we only discovered by chance when I was about 10 and I was going through old photographs, as you do, and pulled out a photograph of my mum with a baby on her knee. And I remember saying to my dad, remember I'm 10, my brother's 14, and I said to my dad, who by the way I never called dad because that was bourgeois, um, they were in the Communist Party, so um, he was always Harold, okay? So kids would come around, why do you call your dad Harold? I don't know, I, th I think he thinks it's bourgeois, you know, which probably not, not very clear to people in Pinner, but never mind, anyway. Um, and uh, it, my dad said, that's not either you or Brian, that's Alan, he died. And that was the first time that me or my brother ever realized that there was somebody else. That means there were no photos in the house, there was no memorial, there was no grave anywhere. And so however they dealt with this awful thing, which had happened, I'm born 46, my brother born 42, somewhere between us, something like 43 or 4, uh, 44 I think it must be that this lad was born. Uh, it was, there was no presence in the house at all, no moment when the, either his birth or death was marked. And uh, my mother never ever mentioned it for the whole of her life. My dad, I think about the only time, other time he possibly mentioned it was when my own son died and we talked a bit about that. So that's one disappearance. Another kind of disappearance is all these relatives in the East End and that whole sort of apparatus around my parents. So my dad would tell me about all his mother's sisters, many of whom were still alive, but we never saw them. Once bumped into one of them in John Lewis and it turned out she was a Labour councillor in West Ham. I said, oh, right, she'd be quite interested. She was gone, boom, yeah, she said, mom's her. Um, she's a bastard, in other words. Yeah. Well, what's the matter with her? Anyway, so that, that was them. And then, rather more seriously than this, were, there was America, which was this presence of my father's father and all that side of the family who were not exi in existence. And then also, my dad would sometimes say, yeah, well, we had relatives in France and Poland before the war, and they weren't there at the end of the war. And you went, well, where, where, where did they go? Well, they died in the camps. It's the way people talked when they're it, it, Jewish families. In the cat, what, 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 what was that? What happened? I don't know. So, thinking about it, and I've written about all three areas of disappearance in the book, I think some part of me thought that I had a job to do, which was to secure and to keep this stuff. And that I watched the storytellers, my parents, telling stories, which they did, and thought, ah, that's the way that you hang on to this stuff. I think that's what I thought. So yeah, the trivial so... answer is because I did. And the non-trivial answer, I think what I'm doing is where there is absence, I created presence. I think that so links in with something you, your father said, where he said a so-called flashbulb memory, supposedly the bright, perfectly remembered moment, often turns out to be wrongly remembered and endowed with significance after the event or even before it. But in fact, what he's saying is it's the emotional 
uh, charge that it carries that is the important thing, not so much you know whether it's to the letter correct. And there's certainly a lot of all that, uh, a lot of all that here. Do you think that your um, I'm just interested in, in what made you a children's writer. In some ways, reading this book, it seems so overdetermined. You, you know, you couldn't have been anything else. But I'm wondering if whether the strong feelings that you had about your childhood sort of made you into a children's writer, or whether are the result of it, or both. I mean, what is the relationship between those two? You've obviously thought. Yeah, a I bit think about the this. starting point for some of that is. I'm always fascinated reading about people who are musicians or singers. I mean, just take the Beatles, for example, and you take, say, John Lennon or Paul McCartney, and then when they talk about their families, they talk about how there was Uncle Watsit who played the, the banjo, and they talk about other people in the family singing, or I've heard Billy Bragg talking about his family rolling up the carpet and having a knees up on a Sunday. So what happens is that all of us, we get repertoires in our, in our ears and in our minds. And then what happens is that these are valued around us or not. It may be that out there in society, people are saying, well, that's crap, don't do it. Or they are validated by things going on. And what happened with me was that I could see this storytelling thing being validated. I could see, see poetry being validated because both my parents like poetry. I think my mum thought it was kind of a religion. It's a bit hard to describe my mother, but she would sort of talk to herself quite a lot. And uh, stereotypically, she'd be doing the washing up or the cooking. And then suddenly she'd go, what's the line? Uh, tread on my dreams. What's the, tread on my dreams. Yeah. Yes. yes. Anyway, you know, yes. what's the line? Yeah, yeah, because yeah. you tread on my uh, dreams. Tread, uh, softly, tread, tread softly, softly because you tread on my dreams. Yeah. And she'd sort of say it out the window. Or she'd say, say the Stevie Smith line um, about, uh, I'm a cat who likes to gallop about. And then she'd go back to washing up, you see. And my dad was a bit more formal. He was the secondary school teacher. So he'd suddenly go, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, creeps in this petty pace from day to day. So there's all this stuff going on. And then, rather bizarre, in amongst all the Yiddish, you know, I oh, don't talk to him, he's for Kapta, you know, that sort of stuff. In amongst tomorrow and tomorrow. So it's a kind of mingling of repertoires. And... The thing is, is that it got validated by the fact that both my parents got involved in very much in literature for children in schools. My mother more so because she started doing BBC schools radio and things like that. And indeed, as I mentioned in the book, Geoffrey Summerfield, maybe a name that might mean something to you, who created the anthologies Voices, those incredible school anthologies were partly created on our front room floor. I remember Geoffrey laying out a kind of ladder of poems on the floor and getting me to come and read them, going, what do you, Michael, what do you think of this one? Um, and so this incredible book, and then the editor of them, Martin Lightfoot, who was a student of Levis, came in with these great piles of photographs. If ever you look at the Voices collection, it was really the first ever collection that mingled poetry with photographs, with drawings, in a very modern sort of colour supplement sort of a way. Uh, this is uh, in the 60s. And uh, this was created in the household. So there's a lot of validation going on at the same time as I'm learning a repertoire without knowing I am. Yes? Mm -hmm. So I think that's partly what led me there. And then my own disposition to loving folk music and folk literature, which has a particular kind of powerful simplicity about it, uh, where the irony is expressed without saying that's what it's being. And... 
I sort of started to find voices through this. So I'm always interested listening to people saying how they got into stuff. And there's nearly always this kind of moment of validation for something that you kind of half know already. I mean, that the picture you paint of the, of the family and the household is one of extraordinary vitality, um, a lot of laughter, a lot of imitation, mimicry, catchphrases, which was not standard for the time. It no. seems quite an unusual household. I don't yes. know if, if that was your brother initiating that or your parents or... Well, I think my father valued the anecdote. I mean, as, as I say, he, as one example was that um, we were on a camping holiday. Uh, camping uh, was obligatory. I don't know whether you know about this. It's, it's in Das Kapital. Um, <laughs> there's a whole chapter. I'm not sure whether it's in the complete works. But anyway, you'll find it um, in, in there that uh, all communists must go camping. And uh, we followed that to the letter. And so a lot of camping went on. And on these camping holidays, there were always sort of anecdoting of one sort or another. But on one occasion, what happened was that my brother left to go on another holiday and forgot his key. And so my dad decided, I mean, he really wasn't Richard Hannay. He really wasn't James Bond. But he decided that he would race the train across the North York Moors <laughs> to Pickering Station in order to hand my brother the key. So we chased in this car belted across the North York Moors, and my dad got onto the platform, ran up the platform, and the window called out for my brother and then handed the key to my brother, who then said, well, that's all right, because I was going to get it from Mr Townsend anyway, <laughs> which, of course, completely pissed off my dad. But when he told the story, he turned one bit of it into, stop the train! <laughs> and he sort of turned himself into some sort of Indiana Jones figure. And I remember sort of thinking, watching this, thinking, this is fun. You know, you like tell a story and it's kind of true, but, you know, it isn't, you know, but it is, but it isn't. And sort of thinking that. And then my brother, yes, uh, my dad was rather heavy on my brother. I, I sort of think of it as kind of immigrant anxiety that part of the worry about my brother or me turning into the Michelsons would be that therefore you must get portable, what we now call cultural capital. You just must study very, very hard because only then will you survive. You know, because, you know, you never know. You might have to leave and you can't carry anything with you. So you better have it all in here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in COP. So, you know, that's what you better have. So he was very heavy on my brother and telling him that, you know, 10 A's was not good enough. He needed 11. Uh, but I didn't do 11 subjects. Never mind, you should have 11. Uh, it was all a bit like that. And, you know, he'd been pushed up a year, my poor brother. And then he was still getting these A's and he was going, he got C for his Latin. Yeah, would you believe it? Anyway. Uh, there's all this going on. And my brother, in order to deal with it, he acted it out. I mean, my brother's a scientist, right? But it, it, my memory of him is, is like exorcising my father by acting him out in the bedroom. So when my father would tell us off, which might be with like something like, never let me see you doing that again. And my brother would sit in the bedroom going, never let me see you <laughs> do it. You know, or there's one I always tell children, which is that um, my dad, in order just to be quiet, he used to say, the noise. That's all he did, okay? It's just nothing else. So my brother, we would be making a noise in the bedroom, and then my brother would go, the noise. And so he sort of played out these things in the bedroom, and it, what it meant was that he was the lightning conductor. So really, I'm like kind of, 
I, I can't say how grateful I am to my brother, not simply for having taught me calculus, not, <laughs> um, but that he sort of anticipated everything. So by the time I came along, all the sort of, I won't say necessarily the terror of my dad towards my brother, but certainly the weight of it was lifted because everything he said, my brother would then be imitating while my dad was saying it. So I remember coming back from a holiday in France, a colony de vacances that I went to when I was 16, got into the car to drive away from the station, and about sort of five minutes down the road, the old man said, so you don't want to, you don't want to know your O-level results? And my brother's going, so you don't want to know your O-level results? <laughs> and then when he told me, then he said, not one distinction. And my brother went, not one <laughs> distinction. Well, it's just funny by then. So instead of this sort of weight that my poor old brother was carrying, for me, it was just this sort of slightly farcical bloke sort of going on about stuff. It doesn't matter that much, does it, Harold? Um, so, but my brother did that for me and indeed a lot of other things uh, of sort of, uh, what is it, trailblazing, isn't it? It's uh, that business of cutting a path for me to go down. The book, I mean, you, you talked about education. The book is a, is a real love letter to education. I mean, your parents' class position was totally transformed. I mean, they went from East End poverty to your father became a professor of education at the Institute of Education. Your mother became uh, involved in the BBC, um, a lecturer, teacher, at Park, a lecturer. Yeah. It was inevitable that you would <laughs> go down that route. Not necessarily, because my brother became a paleontologist at the Natural History Museum. So uh, After having a lot of education. Yes, indeed. So, oh, sorry, I mean, yeah, I follow yeah, what you mean, yeah. yeah. So, yes, my parents, my mum won a scholarship to Central Foundation School for Girls in Spittle Square. My dad got a scholarship to uh, Davenant Foundation. You can still see remnants of the two buildings. Uh, if you, those of you are interested in the East End, you'll see it says the Foundation School on the Mile End Road, uh, opposite the new mosque. And Central Foundation School for Girls, there's a little bit left of it on the edge of Spittle Square. Um, and those two places, uh, no, no question, transformed their lives uh, beyond the, any position that uh, class terms, education terms that their parents or grandparents had ever belonged to. No, no, they, they were all people who had left school very early. Or if you go back to grandparents, these are the immigrants who come from Poland, Romania, Russia, um, with no, no education, no wealth, any of them. And so, yes, it was education. But my dad was always very quick to say, and my mum also, that a vast chunk of their education was in this very strange and extraordinary organization, the Communist Party. I mean, it's, it's, as an outsider, for people who are outside the Communist Party or outside any of those kinds of political Marxist parties, is that we see them in their, if you like, organizational face. We see them on demonstrations. And we don't realize that going on behind the scenes is, for want of a better word, an enormous amount of education. So, for example, and I've quoted it in the book, I found uh, in the Marxist-Leninist library of my parents, my mum's notes on equal pay, a careful annotating of what Lenin had to say and what Marx had to say and what everybody else had to say. This was, in its own way, an alternative form of scholarly behaviour. And this applied to almost everybody in the Communist Party of that time. And so... My mum died in 76, but my dad, in the period that, you know, I had many of these conversations, after my mum died, actually, you know, he would say, look, you know, this was extraordinary. There was this stuff they gave us at school, but there was this, all this other stuff churning it over. You know, he would tell me, for example, that sitting in University College 
London in the late 30s discussing Indian politics and who was sitting there but Krishna Menon, you know, the foreign minister of, of, of post-independence India. Uh, Nehru came and, and talked. And so there's this sense of a kind of huge education that... So what I'm trying to say is my dad, mum and dad both had a strong sense of what is formal education, but also a strong sense of out-of-school education. And I think, and I try to describe this in the book... Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. That I had a strong sense of that, but that didn't come through political organization. I never belonged to anything. People always think I belong to the SWP, but I didn't, just to clear that one up. Not that it matters, but anyway. That I created a sort of, largely sort of an artistic thing through informal participation in varieties of popular music and that sort of thing. And I always thought, but this is as important as the stuff that I'm doing at school. There's nothing less important about Dylan or nothing not less important about, you know, child ballads than the stuff that we're doing in school. Of course, Shakespeare's great, but I mean, this stuff's amazing. And I had that sense of the other, uh, other education, which I think largely they got from the Communist Party. It's interesting. I mean, the, uh, the sense that comes through is that this was a childhood absolutely um, soaked in, in Communist Party, in left politics. Uh, you were what the Americans called a red diaper baby. Yeah. Um, and they've been, uh, and you, it's very interesting the extent to which you questioned your parents about it, but didn't turn in the way that, for example, the ones that come to mind are David Aronovich and Martin Kettle, two other uh, writers, journalists, who uh, came from communist backgrounds. Why do you think that was? I mean, have you, you must have thought about this. Uh, I knew Martin. I know David a bit. My parents knew, uh, knew Kettle, Arnold Kettle and uh, Stan Aronovich a bit. Um, maybe, it's very difficult to say. Yes, some people whose parents were in the, in the CP, as we call it, or the party, Yes, they've left all that and found a home maybe uh, in the Labour Party, the right wing of the Labour Party even, or indeed move further away than that. Ferdinand Mount comes to mind, um, uh, whose parents were in, the, were in the CP, I think, or maybe even he was, I'm not sure. Um, so I think it's partly the nature of my parents' disillusionment was not with the core theory and ideas, but with the way they had been manifested both in the Soviet Union and in the British Communist Party. So their argument was not with Mr. Marx, but indeed more with Mr. Stalin, or indeed John Gollan and Harry Pollitt. Uh, for those of you who don't know, these were the general secretaries of the British Communist Party. So I think what happened was that they were very firm believers in this power of education in the broadest sense of the word, that the human beings could emancipate themselves through education and indeed 
without romanticizing it, that the future rested on the working class emancipating itself. That's the cliche. But it, they believed in that. And somewhere or another, I got that with my mother's milk or after, and the sense that this is the only hope for humanity. And the various finaglings of right-wing parties to take wind power, hold power, wage a few wars, screw the poor, is really not of great benefit to humanity, that just simply winning power in order then to wage a war in Iraq doesn't really solve very much. Um, and it's certainly got nothing to do with socialism. So I think I kind of got that sense. What I describe is running away to the Aldermaston March. So this is after my parents have left the CP in 57. Those of you who know your dates. The Aldermaston March started happening from about 59, 60, 61. And I announced to my parents that I was going to go on the Aldermaston March on my own. And they said, why are you going on your own? We're going on the last day. And I said, no, I am going on my own to ban the bomb forevermore. And they said, you can't go, you can't go. And then my mother started passing me items of food. I mean, you know, the various stereotypes going on here, aren't there? You know, if you think about it, but never mind, we won't mind that. And so I'm going, I'm, I'm going on the march, and she'll say, well, don't forget the dates. He's not going, is he, Harold? Harold said, there's a chicken. Harold, get the chicken. You're not going. Do we know these people, Harold? Do we know them? Of course we don't. Um, you know, why don't you go? Why don't you go next year? You could go next year. You'll be older. They won't have banned the bomb by then, believe me. And she carried on this monologue. It was, it was amazing. But the Aldermaster March was in its way its own mini university because you land up at age 14, 13, 14, on your own on the Aldermaston March, being plied with leaflets by Trotskyists telling you why they're not marching. Yeah, don't fall for the illusion. You've got being plied with people saying, you know, you shouldn't be marching with communists because they're fatally compromised by Stalinism. And you've got Quakers walking along, as my mother noticed, in very good shoes. The Quakers <laughs> are very good shoes. My mother had a thing about shoes. I come back to that. Not her own, by any means, but other people's. And a lot of singing and a lot of, you know, quite extraordinary goings on. They were as Anthony Greenwood's daughter. I kipped down the first night in... Um, it, we had colours. Were, we were divided off into colours. I was magenta. And magenta ended up in a school annex in Reading. <laughs> And I was on my own, apart from the chicken, and, um, and I kipped down. And then there was this very sort of haughty, strident girls with actuary voices who um, proceeded to take their clothes off. And they said, don't look, boy, while we take our clothes off. And I said, no, I'm not. And you are, boy. You're looking. That's you. you are. And so anyway, and then they got up in the morning with just a shirt on. And they kind of walked through the hall where we were all sort of queuing for our toast and baked beans or whatever. And uh, they loved it that everybody was looking at these people. And then they said, that's, that's Greenwood's daughter. Greenwood was the person who stood against Gate School on a CND platform. Uh, Anthony Greenwood, that is. And um, I just remember this as being this kind of pre-university university. And so I absolutely loved it. And I loved the fact that there was an alternative politics. Uh, I mean, there was even standing there the person who had lived in our house a man by the name of Brian Pierce, those of you of a lefty disposition, may know that Brian Pierce translated many of the sort of early texts of the Soviet, so, Soviet then to later, the Russian Communist Party, when they met in London, amongst other things, and also why he left the Communist Party. And he was a close friend of my parents. He lived in our house. By the point of when I was on the Aldermaston March, uh, he had already got himself a Trotskyist beard and Trotsky glasses and was standing there with a banner saying, nationalise the arms industry. 
and me staring at him thinking, why is he doing that? What does that mean? And he just nodded at me very sagely, that kind of lefty nod, you know, like that. And I remember saying to somebody, you know, Brian Pierce, you know, and he said, yes, a great loss, a great loss. I said, no, he's not dead. No, no, I don't mean that. He's a great loss, meaning to the Communist Party. Anyway, so all this was like, wow, what is all this about? And so that was all very exciting. And by the time I got to university, my sort of lefty politics was a bit latent, a bit sort of sleeping in sort of Freudian terms, until, of course, 68. And 68 happened, and it was extraordinary. Um, I was surrounded with people from all over the world. There was a guy who went on to lead the Jamaican Labour Party, Trevor Munro. There was Christopher Hitchens, uh, who had um, discovered all the faults of Stalinism from beginning to end. Um, I was busy telling people about it, and uh, all sorts of people, Hilary Wainwright, and of course, uh, Tariq Ali and Stephen Marks. These names may mean something to you, but anyway, Tariq Ali probably. Um, and uh, it was an explosion and we were looking at the university itself and saying, well, what is this place for and why is it made this way and why are we doing these courses in this particular kind of a way and who runs the courses? Who decides what we study and why are we studying this? Why does the English course end in 1900? Do people stop writing after 1900? Why does it start with Anglo-Saxon? I can't, is that English? Is Anglo-Saxon English? I don't know. Is it Beowulf? Whatway Gardena in Gayard? It doesn't sound much like English. Maybe it is. Anyway, or it's Chaucer even. Juan Aprilo with his sure suit. Is that English? It is English. Yeah, fine. Okay, sorted. Anyway, so there was all this questioning, and everyone was questioning it in their different departments, and it all blew up, and, you know, we occupied this, and there was the huge Vietnam demo, which was another part of the university. So it all made sort of sense. It was quite odd, really, because a lot of the people taking part in that 68 stuff were doing it for the first time in their lives politically. But of course, for me, it just sort of felt, oh, right, I'm carrying on, am I? And then when I got arrested in Grosvenor Square, the March, big March demo of 68, um, and I was slung into the cells in Savile Row, and did, they didn't let us out till four in the morning, and there was my brother and my dad waiting for me. And I thought, well, isn't that nice? Isn't that lovely? You, I mean, you give a very clear sense of, of really being part of a... Of a, a a long Jewish radical tradition. And yet at the same time, your parents had quite ambivalent views about their, their Jewishness. How do you explain that? And it, I don't get the sense that you share that or that you're, you, you're positioned very differently. Yes, right. My mum, I discovered about a few years before I started writing this, only a year or so, a talk that she gave to the, um, I think it was to the girls and to the teachers at Central Foundation School for Girls, obviously sometime in the early 70s. And I hadn't really read this. And I've put it in the book because it's a sort of tribute to English culture, to her English teacher, to the poetry and the plays that this teacher took her to. And she felt she was saved by it. She felt that her own background was, I think she did on one occasion use the word obscurantist. She felt that it was backward and inward looking. She didn't see it as terribly vital. In fact, one of the things she used to say about my dad's swearing was that one of the reasons why she didn't like it, the Yiddish swearing, because it reminded her of her relatives playing cards in the back room. And we'd say, well, what was the matter with that? Well, they were playing gin rummy. 
Well, what's the matter with gin rummy? I t no idea, but it was somehow the idea that they were slinging the cards down, going, you know, and, and she couldn't stand this. And in fact, she would run away to the Bethnal Green Museum, which wasn't a museum of childhood at that time. It was a general Victorian museum, which she would describe as her university. So you can see she is secularizing, not that her parents were particularly religious, but she is taking herself out of that Jewishness. She's rejecting what her mother and father were doing and giving. And she felt that this other stuff was her salvation. If you met her and spoke to her, it was you would hardly ever know that she was Jewish, she didn't tell many stories, you know, in sort of uh, general circles or whatever about that. And you wouldn't necessarily know apart from her name. And if she'd kept her original name, which was Isaacovsky, you might know even more. Um, but my dad... He was much more ambivalent about it. He, I mean, he, he talks about it in Are You Still Circumcised? He's, he accepts what it is that this culture has given him, but at the same time, he was constantly truffling away amongst secular Jewish writers, whether that was Walter Benjamin or whether that was Isaac Babel. And my mother tended not to read those people, Sholem Aleichem. He was constantly trying to find a strand that somehow or other sort of legitimated a sort of secular Jewish identity. And at the same time, he wanted to say things about his mother and his Zayda, that's the Yiddish for grandfather, that his Zayda in particular, who, who was his father figure, that he owed something to them. And he wasn't going to just say, they're all pishers and I don't want to have anything to do with them. And so there's a difference between them. Me coming along, in a sense, I've got it easy. I haven't left anything. You know, I'm not even a rebel, am I? It's pathetic. Do you see what I mean? <laughs> Uh, but they were both rebels in the sense that they kind of rejected aspects of their background. My mother's parents were horrified that she joined the Communist Party. I mean, that was just like, well, she ran away from home in the end. She went to live with my father's mother uh, when she moved into the White City Flats. So that was, you know, it's amazing that I knew them that well because I think me and my brother were sort of part of the reconciliation. Mm. My, my father was close to his sister and close to his mother, but not with any of the other relatives. I want to, in one second, open it up to the floor, but I just want to ask you one final question. I mean, you end the book uh, with a, an epilogue, a, a letter to your father about um, some photographs and your own research into the family history that is, has, uh, about the Holocaust. You've known tragedy in your own life. We're living at, at, at a terribly frightening time in the world. You're very politically active. You seem to be such an optimistic person. Is this an illusion? Is it all the photographs of you in the book, you're smiling? I don't know if this is, they've been selected for their, their smiling. Blame Leo, he's at the back there. He did that, yeah. Are you, I mean, you know, it's like, can you tell us in one sentence if you're optimistic and why? One of the advantages of being a writer and one of the advantages of being a performer is that, how can I put it? Well, there's that famous E.P. Thompson phrase, protest and survive, isn't it? That if you protest, if you kind of play out, in Freudian terms, if you play out the bothers and you play out the problems and you act out these things, then many of the things that bear down on us are relieved. I mean, there is a, there is a, a Freudian, post-Freudian argument that laughter and storytelling and many of these things are relief and release. And... I am very lucky. I found out how to do it. I've sort of studied it and pretend I haven't. 
and I shamble onto stages or in front of 2,000 children and start sort of chatting as if I'm just sort of doing it, sort of learned a bit from Dave Allen off the telly. And, and then I go into what is really Grand Guignol. I go into these kind of big mime acting out, my dad or my grandparents or whatever. And it exorcises. It, it's a relief and a release. And also when I write about, when I write political poetry, which I do, you know, this is again a release. You know, when I see these people like any of the people who've been in charge of us, you know, whether it's Tony Blair or Theresa May or, you know, a person like Michael Fallon. I mean, what an extraordinary <laughs> specimen. This is a person who thinks that simply by talking like that, that somewhere or other he's saying something significant. And then somebody asks him with a sort of serious BBC voice, which God knows I know how to do, saying, so Mr Fallon, what do you think we should do next? Well, I think probably we should implement some of the arrangements. And suddenly we're supposed to go, wow, he's going to implement the arrangements. That's fantastic. And you just think, these people, you know, I mean, I heard, I was listening to that wonderful program, if you haven't heard it, on Machiavelli, a program called Forum, the World Service, and, and I think his name's Quentin, Professor Quentin, he was talking about Machiavelli, and he said one of Machiavelli's insights, he said, was that he realized that rulers can't be virtuous, so they just must seem virtuous. And in one moment, I just thought, that's what we have to put up with. That this sort of bunch of rogues and charlatans and mountebanks are just walking around seeming virtuous. I mean, look at Tony Blair. I mean, the man is a crook, you know, and a terrible, terrible person who did very, very bad things. And he comes in front of us and people sort of say, and what do you think next, Mr. Blair? He seems virtuous. Okay, you've so, had your one sentence. Yeah. I'm going to go. <laughs> so it's working through. <laughs> okay. Right. Two words, working okay. through. Good. We could keep going for another hour, but um, it's over to you. About, around about 1980, I published in the Aquarius a young man called Matthew Sweeney. And it was a poem. And about a year later, the same poem appeared under a lady's name. And when a, when a, a comp in those days, the observer had competitions. And uh, it won, and I, I, I actually photocopied Matthew Sweeney's poem and um, got Matthew to write the Observer. He finally got £2,000 for it. But what I want to ask is, you, you often deal in children's poetry. Is there much plagiarism in, in poetry? Um, I've been plagiarising the folk tradition for about 50 years, as far as I know, people don't do it with intent. The problem is, is that, you know, those of us who write, you know, this is Eddie, Eddie Linden, by the way, um, who indeed edited Aquarius uh, for many years. I've known Eddie for some time, uh, on and off. And um, the problem is, is that for anybody who writes in the room, we don't always know the, the repertoires that are in our head. I mean, it may be that you think you're writing this really brilliant line, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, creeps in this petty pace, and then you go, shit, that was done before. And you don't necessarily know. So, just a very short answer to you, Eddie. I've never met anyone who's done it willfully. But indeed, you know, uh, we know that uh, poets and writers have quoted each other or drawn allusions to each other or sometimes sort of grabbed stuff. I mean, T.S. Eliot began by being a, a, you know, he snipped chunks out of Malarme. Malarme. Um, you know, there's a lot of it about 
not always with willful intent. That's all I'd say to you. Thanks, Eddie. Oh, hello. Hello. It's I Helen. Can, this is I... Helen Weinstein, Professor of Community History, History Education uh, at right, Cambridge history. University. Helen Weinstein. And actually, Michael and I work together quite a lot with kids, and we often encourage those, particularly who are not very confident, to write their own kind of bear hunt style poems and things. So they're. Um, they parody me, exactly. parodying bear hunt. We encourage them to start with plagiarism to. to find their voices. Uh, so my question for you, Michael, is in the context of this life story you've been telling us in such interesting ways tonight, could you give us a glimpse into when you first kind of found your voice? When was the first time where you started to write a poem or a story and you kind of thought, oh, this is exciting because this is actually, this is what's inside me that I'm able to share outside. Do you have a particular memory or particular great, story of that? Great question. I'd done some writing at primary school that I thought, oh, I quite like doing this. I think the first time I thought I could do this was we had a teacher called Miss Grant in what is now called Year 8, Second Year Secondary School, and we looked at uh, the poem that's known as My Last Duchess by Robert Browning, a dramatic monologue uh, in which you slowly figure out that this bloke probably did the woman in that he's talking about. So Last Duchess is a kind of wry joke. But it's a dramatic monologue, and of course it's an ironic monologue in the sense we know more than he appears to be saying. But it's done so subtly and so brilliantly. And this teacher, poor Miss Grant, who we gave a very hard time to, mostly for the reason that she was stunningly beautiful. And so, needless to say, as boys, we couldn't cope with that, so we took the mick. Pathetic, isn't it? She said, after we'd studied it, go home and write your own dramatic monologue. And so I remember going home and I just started writing. And I wrote in a form of sort of metric blank verse an extraordinary odd thing that I've still got about a guy who seems to have murdered someone on a beach and is then saying, well, he deserved it. Now, th there weren't any murders in my family that, I mean, outside of the political ones in the Holocaust and so on, but nobody, nobody I knew was, or no, indeed, there were no murderers. So quite where I got this from, uh, I don't know, but I remember when I'd done it, feeling very, very proud that I'd created this sort of place. Why would you murder someone on a beach and then sort of say you had no regret and the bloke deserved it anyway? So that was uh, sort of stage one. And stage two was reading um, D.H. Lawrence. Well, he, he wrote, you know, he wrote bat and he wrote snake and he wrote man and bat. And I remember thinking, wow, this is amazing. And I love what I loved about the way D.H. Lawrence wrote these monologues was that they are very free and that he did something that I had never really thought about before, which was you write the story as if you're there and you comment on it at the same time. And you actually look at them. It's as if he's like walking along, looking at himself in a swimming pool. And it's brilliant. You know, we know of Proust, we know of all sorts of other people who can do this sort of double narration um, there's even, if you like, Great Expectations is like that, where he's sort of reflecting on the pip that he was, you know. And I remember thinking, wow, I'd love to be able to do that. And as it happens, a moth flew into my room and I killed it. And I thought, moth. <laughs> Never mind bat. What about moth? And so I wrote this poem called Moth which was about a moth, something dark and furry, flying into the room, which I killed and then felt bad about doing. And I wrote it, this sort of in it and after it. And it was, if you like, almost a kind of pastiche of D.H. Lawrence. 
Um, and it got printed in the school magazine. I was very proud of it. So um, that was the sort of second revelation. I was about 14 or 15. And the third revelation was, it sounds so pompous, I know, but portrait of the artist as a young man, which no doubt my dad said, I think you better read that, lad, something like that. But anyway, I did read it. Um, and I read Stephen Dedalus, and I just thought, wow, this is incredible because you can write in the voice of the person you were without saying you're doing it. And that changes as he gets older. And so I started writing things about my childhood. I was only 16, but I was writing about my first memories on Margate Beach when I was two. And I had a sense I was a writer, I think. So those were the three earliest steps, if you like. I hope I overphrased this correctly. Um, I noticed that the, uh, a lot of the, the things mentioned in the book are also in your YouTube performances, uh, but the way they're, they're told, two completely different things. Uh, how much of that is premeditated and how much of that do you note down before you actually uh, start to uh, do them? Over the years, I've learnt how to perform poems. I was basically taught in a kind of an, epif an ep epiphanic moment when I was in a school called Princess Frederica Primary School in Kensal Rise. And I'd arrived and a man called Sean McElane, who, who wasn't of Irish descent, he was actually Irish, and he was the deputy head and he had invited me in and I went into his study and he said, uh, we'd like you to uh, read some of your poems to, with the children. And I thought he meant like five children because I'd only really ever read the poems sort of on microphone on the radio where you sort of read to one person. I know it goes out to thousands, but you have to think of one person. You can't think of thousands or you start shouting. I thought that's what he meant. Then he, I don't really know these old London schools. The head teacher's study is often on the edge of the hall. And he opened the door and the whole school was sitting there. And they were all looking at me. And he went in a very strong West, West of Ireland voice and said, here's Michael Rosen. And there was this great roar. And I thought, oh, shit, what am I going to do? And I opened the book, which is called Mind Your Own Business. My first, and I, I held it up in front of my face in case they could see me, right? And I sort of muttered the poem in a kind of, you know, with no mic or anything like that, and went down and like that. And I glanced across at Sean, and his face was like a mixture of sort of pity and horror. <laughs> he thought he'd invited some kind of live wire into the school, judging from the poems, and I was just muttering. And at the time, I was actually excessively hypothyroid. So, in fact, it was in a sort of monologic sort of drone, like that. Explain that some other time. But anyway, and he just snatched the book off me and went, no, it doesn't go like that, does it, children? And they kind of went, no, like that. Because while I was reading it, they were doing, you know, Velcroing their shoes and sorting out each other's hair and so on. <coughs> London kids give you about 10 seconds, you know. Bam, he's failed us. Carry on with our own lives. And, uh, <coughs> and then Sean goes, no, it doesn't go like that, does it, children? And this great roar, and they're all staring at Sean. And he then presented my own poem. He then sort of danced it. <laughs> he went, the ship in the docks at the end of the trip and the man on board is the captain of the ship. The name of the man was old Ben Brown. And he, anyway, and so on. Uh, he played the ukulele with his trousers down. And all the kids shouted back, and he played the ukulele with his trousers down. Boom, ta -da, boom, ta -da. And I'm going. <laughs> and the weird thing was, it actually connected with all the years I've been bloody arsing about at Oxford, 
putting on funny sketches and reviews where you sort of dance onto the stage and say, oh, I'm a fairy, I'm a fairy, whatever, and all that rubbish. And I suddenly thought, oh, that's what you do. Right. And that moment was when I realized, and it all connected up, all this acting I'd done, I describe it in the book, I belong to an amateur Amdram place called Questers, which taught us Stanislavski and Brecht and all that. And I went, oh. So then what happened was I started performing the poems, and then I would go into monologues, and then I'd say I could take the monologue and turn it into a poem. And then along comes Leo and says, write your memoir. I said, that's all I need, thank you. No chance, mate. And he says, no, 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 you could. He took me out, took me to a nice place, gave me a cup of coffee. That was all he gave me. And, uh, and then, so, yeah, some of it overlaps with some of that, but it's, okay. it's different. We've yeah. got time for just thank one you. very quick one. Michael, are you more like your mother or your father, or are you not like either of them? Um, when, I had our, when we had our first child, I think because my father... Um, hadn't been a kind of hands-on father when we were young. He sort of, they, they did div, sort of divided bringing me up. Mum brought us up to 11, then handed us over to my dad. <laughs> I mean, I don't know whether this was by agreement or whatever, but I just had a strong sense of bye-bye mum, and then turning, and then the old man took over. Mum was a primary school teacher, my dad was a secondary school teacher, so maybe they just thought it went with that. <laughs> right, now you take over, see? So... When we had our first child, I remember thinking, well, Harold's no use, does he? Because, I mean, he didn't know anything about that. So maybe that'll take over later. But so I sort of channeled my mum. And so I thought, well, what did she used to say? You know, so, for example, when I was a kid, she used to call me Muzik. Muzik is the Russian word for a little peasant. I have no idea why my mother called me Muzik. <laughs> she would call me Shmeril, which is a word uh, for a little fool. So I was called Muzik and Shmeril. I mean, my mum was very, very fond of me. After all, she had lost a child, and I reflect on that. So I was the child who came after. And I thought, my mother hardly ever told me off. Leave him alone, he's tired. I, I want that on my grave, by the way. Um, and so I thought, well, I'll try and do that. So I tried to be my mother in the way that I sort of brought my kids. I don't think I was anywhere near, haven't been anywhere near as good as she was. Um, and then as they've got older, I thought, I don't want to be my father and sit on their back going, have you done your homework? <laughs> have you, it's history, is it? History. What are you doing in history? What do you mean stuff? <laughs> what sort of history? Oh, 19th century history. Which part of our 19th century history? <laughs> the Chartists. Very interesting. Well, no, not really. Chartists. Very interesting. What's your essay? Why Chartism failed. Failed? <laughs> Chartism didn't fail. Off to the shelves, get a book. What's the book? Why Chartism Didn't Fail, even though Michael says, read that. Anyway, so I thought, no, I don't want to be that. But at the same time, I know that this voice that I'm using now and that I'm talking to you with is incredibly like my father's. That, you know, he was a fantastically entertaining speaker. Uh, he was, um, you know, his, his writings have just come out. Institute of Education have just published them, as well as these stories. And he was a great person to reflect on the meaning of autobiography and narrative. And uh, these are things that I prize too. So in one sense, uh, I am them both. And I try to be my mother in the uh, business of bringing up children, not my father, um, even though I owe so much to him. But then in this sort of open world, then I can see some aspects of my father. But then the performance stuff, well, it's my brother, the paleontologist. 
who doesn't perform anywhere apart from his lectures on Darwin, um, which are quite funny. I went to one at the Natural History Museum, actually. It was quite good. It was very good. We, yeah. are, we, we could go we, on. We'd better, we yeah. we, we better stop. Yeah. Uh, so will you join me in thanking Michael for a wonderfully entertaining Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.